This year, I will be returning to the Philadelphia Podcast Festival on Sunday, July 21st at the National Liberty Museum at 7 p.m. The Liberty Museum sits at 321 Chestnut Street in Old City, and they have graciously offered a pay-what-you-wish admission. You can tour the museum for any dollar amount you wish and see all of the shows hosting live events there for free. I have a link to the festival schedule on my social media pages so you can get information about all the amazing Made in Philly shows participating in the festival this year. For more information about the festival, follow me on social media. I'm on Facebook at the Twisted Philly Podcast, on Instagram at Twisted Philly, and on Twitter at Twisted underscore Philly. B-Pod Studios. If you follow me on social media, then you saw a few photos I posted this week of the old St. John's County Jail in St. Augustine, Florida. I was in Jacksonville, Florida for the week for my day job. And since it's only about 45 minutes from St. Augustine, I was able to grab a little bit of time on my last night in town and visit the oldest city in the continental United States. Yes, I talk all about the firsts in Philadelphia, and we have our fair share of firsts. But not everything here in the city of brotherly love is the oldest. St. Augustine was founded in September 1565, 42 years before the city of Jamestown. I'm not going to take you through the history of St. Augustine. There are other podcasts that have great episodes about that city, featuring the long and often tumultuous history in St. Augustine. I would, however, like to take you on the road with me to visit the old St. John's County Jail, built in 1891 because a rich man didn't like the location of the county's existing jail. It sat across the street from a fancy hotel he'd built, and the idea of his rich northern friends traveling to Florida to bask in the warm, salty air while catching the view of a jail wasn't exactly the vacation experience he'd had in mind. Unlike Eastern State Penitentiary, which was built on the philosophy of penitent isolation, had running water, individual cells with skylights, and private exercise yards, the much smaller old jail in St. Augustine was built on the philosophy of making people as miserable as possible. Granted, there's about 60 years between the opening of Eastern State and the old jail I visited this week. But it was disturbing to hear the stories about Sheriff Joseph Perry, who ran the old jail in St. Augustine, and the horrors inflicted on prisoners contained therein. Eastern State Pen was the model prison for much of the country and parts of Europe in the early 1800s. But by the turn of the century, the old Johnson County Jail in St. Augustine, Florida, was the model for prisons that elicit fear and make your skin crawl as soon as you hear their names. And that's due in large part to the company that built the old jail. That was the P.J. Pauley Jail Building and Manufacturing Company out of St. Louis, Missouri, and their 1892 patent for a mechanism that opened, closed, and locked jail doors with a remote lever, instead of the jailer having to get up close and personal at each and every cell to let prisoners out one by one. This week, we're taking a ride down the coast. Now, we've done this a few times in the past. Touring the old St. John's County Jail was a great experience. Learning its twisted history while I was the lone participant on the last tour of the day, I'd like to take you along for that ride with me. We'll talk about the history, the hauntings, and the hangings that make this little jail, which looks more like a Victorian home than a prison, one of the scariest places in St. Augustine, Florida. I'm Dina Marie, your host on this week's Twisted Road Trip. Welcome to Twisted Philly. 
There's more mischief, mayhem, and nefarious goings-on in the city of brotherly love than Billy Penn could have ever imagined. We've got it all here on the Twisted Philly Podcast. True crime, haunted history, the coolest and creepiest places to visit. Welcome, Welcome to, to Twisted, Twisted Philly. Philly. Before I go any further with this story, I have to offer a great big what up and thank you to my tour guide at the old jail, a man named Bucky. By the time I arrived in St. Augustine late last week, I thought I'd missed the last tour of the day at the old St. John's County Jail, which I'll refer to just as the old jail for the rest of this episode. The jail has a bit of a Wild West town built up around it, featuring crazy gift shops, a little museum, and within the museum are Zoltar machines. Instead of the typical fortune teller sitting inside the glass case, the machines at the old museum featured a prisoner in a black and white striped uniform and the figure of a wizened old woman who looked as if she stepped out of Little House on the Prairie. I am not a fan of these machines. That fear was developed long before the movie Big, where Tom Hanks makes a wish to be, well, big. I am unnerved when I see these glass boxes with their animatronic figures trapped inside. I know it's a weird phobia, but it's my phobia. When I approached the old jail, which I'd never visited before, I wasn't sure I was even at the old jail because it looks like a Victorian home. The building is two to three stories tall, depending on which side of the jail you're viewing. Today, it's painted a terracotta shade of dark pink. There are two porches on either side of the building. It's got gingerbread molding, beautiful ornate cornices, and more gingerbread on the eve of the second floor. Honestly, it looks like a building you'd find in Cape May, New Jersey, or maybe the Garden District of New Orleans. I noticed a man standing out front wearing the same black and white striped uniform as the figure in the Zoltar machine, so I figured he was a tour guide. I asked him if I missed the last tour of the day. Lucky for me, there was one tour left before the jail closed up shop, and I was the sole visitor. This man introduced himself to me as Bucky. He was an inmate at the old jail, and it was his job to give me the lay of the land as a new inmate. As in me, I was the new inmate. And on that tour, I was the only inmate. While at the time, the idea of touring an old abandoned jail by myself with a guide who introduced himself as an inmate didn't seem at all scary. After the fact, I thought, this shit is like the beginning of a horror movie. I can tell you, though, it wasn't really anything like that. According to Bucky, I'd arrived at the jail in the early 1900s. It had been open for about 10 years, and it was Bucky's job to make sure I knew how to behave. He'd show me where I'd sleep where I'd work, and he let me know I'd probably never get out of jail because that's how things were run under Sheriff Joe Perry. In the 1870s, a man named Henry Flagler was one of the richest men in America. His name may not be as familiar as Rockefeller, but it might as well be considering his wealth and position at the time, plus the fact that Flagler and his stepbrother invested $100,000 in John Rockefeller's first oil refinery. These men made a fortune in oil. They were living the high life in New York City, but money can't buy everything. No amount of money in the world was able to help Henry Flagler's wife, who suffered from tuberculosis. In 1878, Mary Flagler's doctor advised them it would be best if they traveled south to Florida, 
where the warm weather and fresh air may improve her condition. Another winter in New York with the damp, cold air, snow, and grime of the city would likely be the death of her. The Flaglers heeded Mary's doctor's advice, but sadly, she did not survive the journey to Jacksonville, Florida. Instead of returning to New York, Henry Flagler ventured a little further south to St. Augustine, which featured a vast space of undeveloped land. Flagler had all that oil money and connections in New York, so he jumped into the hotel business, thinking he could entice his friends to visit the sunny shores of Florida. He built the Ponce de Leon Hotel. This place looks like the Alhambra Palace in Spain. He spared no expense. Not only was this a glorious, decadent space with rooms for almost 500 guests, he installed electricity in every room that was controlled by the guests. Now, apparently, he had to hire extra staff just to turn the light switches off and on because guests were afraid to touch the switches. The Ponce de Leon was designed to draw Flagler's rich northern friends down the coast, but there was one problem. The county jail sat across the street from this magnificent hotel, and that simply would not do. Henry Flagler appealed to the city. Surely they would understand how a jail within view of his guests would be off-putting. Well, the city didn't really give a shit. They didn't have the funds to build another jail, and there was nothing wrong with the jail they already had. It served the purpose of making each and every inmate just as miserable as they could be, regardless of their crime. Flagler tried another tactic. He said, what if I fund the new jail? Why, sure, it's your dime, brother. We'll build whatever you want, wherever you want it. But this new jail couldn't look like a jail because those rich friends of Henry Flagler's couldn't have their Victorian sensibilities accosted with an eyesore of a prison. So in 1891, Flagler found a company that would not only build the jail, but they would build it in such a way as to hide the goings-on inside. Flagler hired the P.J. Pauley Jail Building and Manufacturing Company. They were based in St. Louis, and together with Flagler's instructions, they built a jail that looks like a small but beautiful hotel. Bucky told me visitors to St. Augustine in the late 1800s and early 1900s often knocked on the jail door, asking about room availability. Sure, Bucky said, we can put you up, but you won't be leaving without a pardon. While that sounds pretty funny, it was absolutely true. There's nothing about this old jail from the outside to indicate in any way its purpose, unless you look on the other side of the building where the gallows stands. While Eastern State Penitentiary is terrifying on the outside, they've got castle-like balustrades. You've seen so many pictures of these if you follow me on social media. That prison was designed to be so intimidating that the sheer look of the building would deter people from committing a crime. But the jail in St. Augustine looked almost inviting. That was at least until you got inside. Bucky took me through the women's entrance. This prison housed both men and women, but they were kept separately, and the women never saw the men. There were only two cells for women, with two bunks built into the wall in the front cell and four bunks built into the wall in the back cell. These bunks could fold up and down, and it would allow a little more space in the women's cells. But that really didn't make much of a difference when you crowded eight or more women into a space designed to hold maybe two or four people. 
Not everyone got a bed. And bed is an exaggeration because these bunks had mattresses that were perhaps an inch thick. They were filled with Spanish moss. And according to Bucky, they were also filled with bugs. Instantly, my skin began to crawl because stupid me stuck my hand through the bars as he was describing the mattresses. And that was before he mentioned the creepy crawlers. The old jail had no glass on the windows. There were bars to keep the prisoners inside. But anything and everything could crawl through the bars from the outside. Not only bugs, but squirrels, raccoons, possums, any sort of wildlife that could fit through those bars would make its way inside the prison. That was especially bad for the women whose cells were on the first floor and folks in the death row cell. But we'll come back to death row in a few minutes. Women were jailed for all sorts of reasons that in many cases had very little to do with committing a crime. And this wasn't unique to the old jail in St. Augustine. Women who were of what was called low reputation were thrown in jail. Sometimes the old jail did house women who committed a crime, but more often than not, someone got tired of his nagging wife and found a reason to send her off to the old jail after it opened in 1891. Bucky then took me into the kitchen, where if you were a woman in the old jail, you spent the majority of your days. I walked into this space, and in front of me was a beautiful antique cast iron stove. I was instantly in awe, forgetting the reason why that stove was there. There was a pot on the stove that was probably the biggest pot I've ever seen in real life. Bucky was so patient and indulgent with me because, of course, I screamed, oh my God, that's the biggest pot I've ever seen. And so he said, all right, go on now, pick it up, give it a try. I could barely lift this thing with both hands and it was empty. There was an old cast iron skillet on a counter. So Bucky challenged me to lift that one too. And as heavy as it was, I managed to lift it using two hands. I had one hand on the handle and my other hand was on the side of the pot, which immediately prompted Bucky to tell me, you just burnt your left hand. I didn't think about the fact that these female inmates weren't lifting that skillet like it was an antique in an old jail. They were cooking with it. So he then had me lift it from the handle alone. And even with both hands, I could barely lift this thing off the counter. I know this story probably sounds funny. And it was. It was funny and it was entertaining and it was also wretched. These women toiled all day long cooking coffee and grits in the morning for the inmates, the guards, Sheriff Joe Perry and his family if they were staying there. They cooked coffee and beans for a midday meal and then more coffee and more beans for dinner. When they weren't in the kitchen, they were outside in the heat and the humidity tending to the grounds. But it's not like there was a garden that provided fruit or vegetables. Beans and coffee, that was all you got unless you were a member of the staff. Between the kitchen and the women's cells was death row. This was one cell with a barred window that looked directly out at the gallows. That was your view while you were on death row. Sometimes the view outside was empty. There was no scaffold because you as the man on death row had to build your own scaffold. Each scaffold had to be built to the height and weight of the man to be hanged. Bucky asked me, who knows you better than yourself? So it was the prisoner who built his own gallows. That was sadistic. I'm not standing in judgment of the crimes these men committed to land them on death row. Sometimes it was a matter of once you got in, you didn't leave other than by the hangman's noose. Whether these men deserved a death sentence, I can't say in many cases. But I wonder if any of the inmates in the death row cell took their time building their own gallows so their hanging could be delayed by a matter of days or hours. 
Let's talk a little bit more about the gallows. In a holding area between the kitchen and the death row cell, there's an enormous photo of a man standing atop the gallows. He seems rather small, as do the other men standing next to him, but I don't really think they were. I think they were reduced in size because of Sheriff Joe Perry standing next to them. This man was over six and a half feet tall and weighed more than 300 pounds. There's a statue of Joe Perry sitting on a bench outside, which Bucky told me is absolutely true to life. And he appears as if he were a giant. Joe Perry cut a rather imposing figure, and it's that image that really made these other men seem so small, especially the prisoner Sim Jackson. Sim was arrested in 1906 for murdering his wife. According to his neighbors, he and his wife had a terrible argument. They could hear them yelling at one another from outside. This argument escalated into a physical fight. And in a fit of anger, Sim Jackson grabbed his straight razor. His neighbors tried to pull him off his wife, but they were unsuccessful. And Sim slit his wife's throat. He'd cut her neck so deeply, her head hung on by a mere thread. Sim was sentenced to die by hanging. But before his death, he was given a very unique opportunity. In this photograph, there are dozens, if not a hundred or more people in the background. That's the good people of St. John's County there for the entertainment of watching someone swing from a rope. In the foreground were two men whom Bucky told me were brain doctors. These physicians wanted to understand what happened to a man when he was hanged. Not merely the physical condition, how long it took for someone to die, but what went through the prisoner's mind. Now that is some seriously sadistic shit. These doctors traveled the country attending hangings, and when they were given permission by the prisoner, they would approach him after he dropped through the gallows and ask him questions as he swung back and forth. Bucky and I agreed these doctors were quacks, because how the hell can you speak when you can't even breathe? Of course they wouldn't get an answer out of these men. Well, once they got to the old jail in St. Augustine, these doctors changed their approach. They asked Sim Jackson if he would be willing to use hand gestures after he dropped through the gallows to answer their questions. And if he agreed, he would be granted a dying wish. No, he wouldn't be granted the opportunity to forgo his hanging, but something small, something simple. Sim Jackson's wish was simple. He'd never had his picture taken. And if they agreed to capture him for all eternity in a photograph, He'd let them ask any questions they wanted, and he'd try to oblige with hand signals. The enormous photo that hangs on the wall in the old jail is that photograph. I've read it's the only photograph ever taken of a hanging at the old jail. Sim Jackson stands atop the gallows in a suit and tie, holding a bouquet of flowers because he wanted to look his best for the only photograph of himself he would ever have. According to inmate and tour guide Bucky, these two doctors rushed to Sim once he dropped through the gallows. It didn't sound like he was able to answer their questions with hand gestures, but legend has it he wiggled his fingers for 11 minutes. That's how long it took for him to die. And because the photograph was processed after his death, he never even had a chance to see it. Bucky told me the story of another prisoner put to death at the old jail gallows, a man named Charlie Powell. Charlie was also guilty of the crime of murder. There was a man in town who spread horrible rumors about her wife. He put to shame her good reputation. Charlie Powell was a chivalrous type, so he killed that man. He knew what he did was wrong, 
so he turned himself in to Sheriff Perry at the old jail. Charlie hoped the sheriff would have a little mercy on him, maybe hold him in jail for a few years as punishment, but Charlie Powell fully expected the law would be on his side because he'd killed an unscrupulous man. Yeah, that's not at all what happened. In St. John's County, if you committed murder, you died. The law was really that simple. On the day of his hanging, Charlie Powell was found unconscious in his cell. Nothing would revive him. The jailers screamed at him. They kicked him. They doused him with cold water. Charlie was alive but unconscious. A physician was called and couldn't find anything wrong with him other than the fact he was out cold. The jailers assumed there would be no hanging that day, but Bucky assured me Sheriff Perry was no man to be trifled with. He promised the community a hanging and a hanging they were going to get. How do you get an unconscious man to stand up on the platform of a gallows? Sheriff Perry had his men get a big old board, and they tied Charlie to that board to hold him up. The sheriff didn't take into account the gallows was built for Charlie Powell's height and weight. Not the weight of Charlie, plus a board big enough and heavy enough to hold him up. Bucky asked me, what do you think happened when that gallows door dropped? Probably the same thing you're thinking. The rope broke. Charlie was unconscious when he hit the ground, but somehow he was still alive. He'd likely broken his back, but the fall hadn't killed him. And Sheriff Perry promised the town a hanging. He made his men find another length of rope and strung Charlie up again. But by the time they'd gotten him back up on the gallows, Charlie Powell had finally died. The tour also included the general population section of the prison, up on the second floor. Here there were four bunks in each cell, but there were never just four inmates in a cell. Unlike the women's cell, these bunks were screwed into the wall. They couldn't fold up and down. There was absolutely no room to move. I tried to walk into the cell, but the space between the bunks was narrower than my shoulders by at least two to three inches on either side. The only way to enter the cell was sideways, and once you were in there, there wasn't even enough space to turn around. There could be as many as eight men in these cells, which I found impossible. Most of the men worked on chain gangs for weeks at a time. Their wrists and ankles were shackled with restraints that wouldn't even fit around my wrists. If it would barely fit around my wrist, there's no way it would fit an ankle of these men because I have these weirdly small hands and wrists. And if you compare me to another tiny-handed person, I will throat punch you. These men spent weeks at a time as free laborers. Free as in it cost the city nothing because these men weren't paid. While large groups of prisoners would be out of the old jail, more people would commit crimes, new prisoners would be brought in, they'd be shoved in the empty cells, and then a few weeks later, the first batch of prisoners came home and you were instantly overcrowded. Part of the prison housed the sheriff's quarters. In his office were the original pine floors. There were guns that had been taken from inmates over the last century. There was a fingerprinting kit, which was one of the first kits ever used in the United States. It was ordered in 1905. Many prisons and members of law enforcement in the U.S. thought these were some newfangled foolery created by Sherlock Holmes. But these kits were created by Scotland Yard, and they were legit. This kit was shipped from London through New York and down to Sheriff Perry in 1905. It was amazing to see the packets of powder and the magnifying glass still so very much intact. 
The case is beautiful. I'll share a photo of the kit and a few more images on the Twisted Philly social media pages. I'm not going to tell you everything I learned about the old jail, because if you ever visit St. Augustine, Florida, I'd love for you to visit it yourself. It is a beautiful city with a long history and an amazing shopping district. If you've ever been to Washington Square in Cape May or heard me describe it in an episode from last year, imagine a beautiful neighborhood with streets as narrow as Alfred Sally in Philadelphia, barely wide enough for a car to pass down. But here in St. Augustine, they do. I'm always shocked by how many alleys around St. George's shopping area allow cars. But this area is like eight or ten blocks on and off St. George's Street between Orange and Cathedral, although even beyond those streets, you'll find all of these fabulous little boutiques, cafes, bars, restaurants. There's shops that sell gourmet popsicles, crystals and metaphysical gifts. They've got cigar shops and chocolatiers, steampunk clothiers. It is a shopper's paradise. Even if you don't buy a thing but a cup of coffee or an ice cream, it's an amazing spot for browsing and people watching. This is where you'll also see the city gates of St. Augustine, built in 1808 to mark the heart of the city. Right across the street is the Castillo de San Marco. That's the oldest fortress in the United States, dating back to the 17th century. What I really enjoyed about touring the jail was the guide. Bucky didn't skimp on anything because he had only one guest. He could have had 20 guests on that tour with me because he put so much energy and commitment into my tour. The poor guy said he thought it might be a little shorter than usual because with only one guest, there may not be many questions. Ah, Bucky, you didn't know who you were dealing with, massive history nerd that I am. I loved that he was in character as an inmate talking to me as if I was a fellow inmate. But at the same time, it wasn't an over-the-top production. The character didn't take away from the history. He also demonstrated real sensitivity and consideration when talking about the wretched conditions at the old jail. This was a functioning jail until 1953, which I don't even see how that's possible when there was no running water, not even a toilet without a seat in a cell. You could barely stand in the cell so there was no room for anything. The only means of sanitation were a bucket. I imagine these conditions were even worse for people imprisoned here in the last few decades the prison was open, because those folks were used to facilities and electricity and closing a window to the elements and the bugs. You know the stories of Eastern State Penitentiary, Moyamensing Prison, and other prisons in Pennsylvania. But when I look at the space in the old jail, even though people weren't necessarily kept in one big room, They may as well have been because the conditions weren't all that different at the old jail in St. Augustine from the conditions we know of at the Walnut Street Jail in Philadelphia back in the 1700s. The old jail is called one of the most haunted locations in the town. Over the years, paranormal investigations were held at the old jail. Some were hosted by a group called Two Ghouls Investigations. Participants reported seeing full-bodied apparitions. They've heard voices when there was no one else in that part of the jail and they supposedly captured EVP recordings. Some folks have also claimed to see orbs or had what they called an experience that left them wondering how they could disbelieve the paranormal. It seemed like some were non-believers before the investigation at the old jail, but after spending time there late at night, they had a very hard time holding on to their suspicion. One person who did a paranormal investigation at the old jail said they had an experience in the solitary confinement cell. 
That cell was very similar to the others, but had no view to the outside, nor were you given a bucket for your toilet. It was just a space filled with utter darkness, where you couldn't see your hand in front of your face. There was a small door within the cell door, through which jailers could pass a cup of water and a piece of moldy bread. I did find a few recordings online from investigations hosted by two ghouls. These were back in April 2013. One session was about two minutes long. The investigators had a ghost box with them, and you can hear static in the background of their conversation. About a minute into the recording, the ghost box, which uses radio frequency to tune to a channel on which spirits might be able to communicate, stopped scanning static, and it started to pick up music. Maria, one of the investigators during this particular night, realized the music was the Cuban national anthem. Maria said she was of Cuban descent. She believed perhaps a spirit in the old jail selected that song just for her. There are at least a dozen audio clips on YouTube from two ghouls, and that's the number two and the word ghouls. They're mostly EVP sessions from April 2013. I listened to these over and over, and I listened to them with headphones. Whoever edited these videos are kind enough to call out noises and voices with text on screen. But I didn't hear anything other than music in that first video I described. Maybe it's the result of the problems I've had with my ears this year. Maybe it's just that there's nothing there to hear. I don't know. But if you check it out, you can find them on YouTube. Again, it's two, the number two, ghouls, G-H-O-U-L-S. Give it a listen. Let me know if you hear anything. Haunted, I really can't say. The old St. John's County Jail is oppressive when you're inside. You feel it like a weight bearing down on you. But I can't say there was anything in or around the jail that made me think it was haunted. I do think it was a pretty torturous place to live during the 62 years the jail was in operation. As much as I enjoy ghost tours and haunted history, I really loved the last tour of the day where I learned so much history about this building, the prisoners, and its sheriff, a man who served as sheriff longer than any other lawman in Florida. I'd like to thank all of you for indulging me in a little trip outside of Philly. I hope you enjoyed learning about the old jail in St. Augustine, Florida. There is so much history in that city. Someone ought to start their own podcast about it. I'd also like to give you a preview of a few upcoming episodes. Next week, we're heading up to Northeast Pennsylvania, to Luzerne County, where two despicable, corrupt judges sold kids to private juvenile detention facilities, thousands of kids, many of whom were guilty of nothing more than stupid preteen mistakes. Over a period of more than five years, these men lined their pockets with millions of dollars while nearly ruining the lives of so many kids in Northeast Pennsylvania. Later this summer, we will spend some time with a young woman, some considered America's first supermodel, Gia Karanji. Gia was born and raised right here in Philadelphia. She was the first openly gay model with that level of success, that supermodel level of success. Her story is unbelievably tragic because her star burned so hot and so fast that she found herself in a hospital in the Philly suburbs trying to survive within just a few years after gracing the covers of Vogue and Cosmo and being Armani's It Girl. 
And yes, we will get back to the episode I promised about Hannah Callowhill Penn. The Cash for Kids scandal in Luzerne County and Gia Karangi episodes are listener requests. The first is from my daughter, which doesn't often happen. And the episode about Gia was a request from listener Tim K, who also recommended a great book about Gia's life called A Thing of Beauty. Recently, I had requests for an episode about the demon of Brownsville. That's the story of a haunting in Pittsburgh at the home of the Cranmer family. Bob Cranmer wrote a book about his family's experiences. And just last week, Hillbilly Horror Story podcast released an episode about this haunting. And that episode includes an interview with Bob Cranmer. So if you are interested in that story from Pittsburgh, I encourage you to check out Jerry and Tracy's episode about the demon of Brownsville on Hillbilly Horror Stories podcast. Okay, speaking of Jerry and Tracy, we are planning a live show right here in Philly on Saturday, October 12th. I am so excited they will be here in Philly bringing hillbilly horror stories to the city of brotherly love and sisterly affection. Here is the problem, and this is primarily for the locals. Guys, I need your help. I have been going out of my mind trying to find a venue in the city to host a live show on that date that can hold up to 100 people and not cost a few thousand dollars in an upfront fee for space rental. If you know Philly, you know everything is narrow. Room space for that many people can be tough. I'm asking for your help, Twisters. If you know of a venue that can hold between 75 to 100 people, It isn't far from public parking. I mean, like within a couple of blocks, whether it's a lot or a garage and doesn't charge a few grand for space rental. Please reach out as soon as possible and let me know. I have talked to dozens of venues all over the city. I have visited numerous venues all over the city and I'm just not finding what we need. Tweet me, DM me, email me at twistedphillyatoutlook.com. I have found some great spaces I hadn't even considered before that are small and intimate, and I can't wait to work with those spaces for future Twisted Philly live shows. But with the interest people have already expressed in this particular event with Twisted Philly and Hillbilly Horror Stories, we need something a little bigger, and we need something where people can find a place to park. Thank you all very much in advance for any suggestions you may have to offer. Thank you to Emmy Sarah for the music you heard in this and almost every episode of Twisted Philly. You can find out more about Emmy on her website at emmysarah.com and download her music on iTunes. Twisted Philly is part of the B-Pod Studios Network. You can learn more about other B-Pod Studios podcasts on their website at bpodstudios.com and follow them on social media at B-Pod Studios. Okay, I think that does it for today. Next week, I'll be back with stories from our Keystone State and the Twisted City of Philadelphia. As always, thank you for listening. That's it from me. Ciao for now, Twisters.